Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make an impact in our area. I'm your host, Nick Carissimi. On the show today is a group recommended by Jason Dyke of Carson's Village. Ranch Hands Rescue is located in Argyle. In studio with me is LPC intern Landon Dixon. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. I am very glad that you're here. I like organizations like this. I find this fascinating. And the cool thing is today we get to talk about what you guys do as an organization, but we're also going to dip in to a little bit of the science of why this works, why it's important. We're going to learn a lot about this organization Let's start at the beginning. What is Ranch Hand Rescue? What do you guys do? Well, the tagline is animals helping people and people helping animals. Because what we do is rescue the worst of the worst cases when it comes to farm animals who've been abused or neglected. Um, We have one right now that he's a donkey named Doka, and he was actually beaten in his mother's womb and suffers from seizures. Normally animals like that would be just put down because nobody wants them. But we see dignity and worth in every animal and every person. So we rescue those animals. They give them a forever home, take care of their medical needs, and then they become therapy partners for the people that we see. And we focus on complex trauma and PTSD with the people that we see. And we partner the animals with the people for them to both heal moving forward. We've got a lot to discuss. A lot to cover there. Um, Let's talk first about the people. When you say complex trauma, what are you talking about? Okay. Complex trauma is typically multiple incident or multiple perpetrator traumas. So it could be anything from incest from childhood, by which would be by a family member, but it could also be by um, a friend or a stranger, but, you know, years of it. Um, we also have people that have, we, have, we work with veterans a lot, so people that have been overseas and seen war, and obviously that's trauma after trauma after trauma. But also, it, it can also be you know, there could be a single event, but then other things have come from that. So a single event trauma that leads to addiction or an eating disorder, and then multiple traumas come out of that process as well. We see that a lot. Um, but we try to get to the core of it, right, which is the trauma itself. Because just kind of in a nutshell, a traumatic event is anything that overwhelms your ability to cope in that moment and or makes you feel like your life is in danger. So What's a trauma to you may not be a trauma to me. Like if a snake came into the studio right now, I wouldn't be a big deal to me. But if you're afraid of snakes, that could be a traumatic moment for you, right? But once we move forward, it's how we handle it moving forward that makes kind of the difference in how we cope long term. Why deal with the hardest of the hardest cases, which is how I would describe what you're talking about? Why does this organization choose to focus specifically on them? That's a great question. And I love Bob's answer to that. Bob Williams is our founder and CEO, and he had this vision of rescuing animals and then started learning more about sex trafficking and human trafficking in general. And he went in and and saw all the wonderful work that's being done. But then he was asking, okay, what happens to the people that 
don't get help? What happens to the people that, you know, they go to counseling, but they don't get better? Um, people that get stuck. And he, he found through research that one to eight percent of people, especially with complex trauma, that go through counseling and go through all the services and treatment modalities, they just kind of get stuck. They, they don't they're not able to move forward. And so he didn't want to take away from any of the wonderful work that's already being done by so many organizations throughout the country. He wanted to fi- establish a place for those one to eight percent that just haven't been successful. And that's where he got started with the counseling program. Is there a common reason why people get stuck? Man, that's a great question. Um, I can't say that there's a common reason because each person's different. So the classic counselor answer to these questions is it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I will say that I think part of what makes Ranch Hands Rescue a place for people to become unstuck is just the environment itself. Because when you come out there, you just breathe a sigh of relief because the place that you're at is is beautiful. It's not in a traditional counseling setting. You're out there with animals. You're out there in nature. And you can relate to these animals, and they can relate back to you because they've been through it. It's almost like they get it. And that relating, that connection, is part of what creates that healing process because the research shows that it's the relationship. Every single time, it's the relationship that creates the healing and the environment for someone to recover. What is it about the relationship between abused animals and abused people? I have had equine therapy organizations on before. I've had people who work with dogs on before. And animals that have had, let's say, a normal life seem to do great things for people in need. You guys specifically team up abused animals, abused people. What is the difference there? What, What is the factor that's going to create a difference? So that's another thing that's so unique here is Bob, you know, started with the rescuing animals part and then brought in the the counseling component. And during that process, he interviewed with a lot of people, did a lot of research and found there's not one bit of data on partnering abused and neglected animals with abused and neglected people. There's tons of stuff on what you're talking about, and that's how we know it works. But this has never been done before. And we're actually partnering with UNT to study this to figure out, okay, what are the specific elements? What is it about this that works? And how effective is it? And we've had amazing results. And I can't speak to exactly like what that fundamental property is that, that causes it. You know, what's that, that one thing? Um, but what I can say is on a neuroscience level, you have animals that have a dysregulated brainstem because they've been through trauma. That's part of what happens in trauma. Your brainstem, which you know controls all the organs and breathing rate, heart rate, things that you don't consciously think about, that becomes dysregulated. And that becomes a bottom-up dysregulation. So you go from brainstem to the limbic system, which is emotions, to the neocortex, which is um, our thoughts and cognitions, right? Once that, that bottom process, brainstem is dysregulated, it cascades up. Same thing happens in animals. So as these animals that have been through that kind of learn how to re-regulate themselves through their own rehabilitation, and then you bring in people that are dysregulated, there's this instant connection that you maybe don't always get in other treatment modalities. And it's amazing to see when you see it. I've had it happen for myself and from an event that I went through and then just went out there to the ranch because I was like, I got to get away. And I just an instant calm came over me and I felt the re-regulation process happening. I think that's a big part of what makes the difference is 
two beings side by side that have been dysregulated that are re-regulating together. Do the animals act differently towards people that have experienced trauma? So I would say that I'm fortunate enough to never have had any kind of major trauma happen to me outside of regular life stuff. Sure. Okay? So if I showed up to the ranch and met that donkey that you were talking about, do you think that he would act differently towards me as opposed to somebody who has been through complex trauma? Absolutely. And part of the reason for that is, you know, we have to remember they perceive us as predators, right? So right out of the gate, they're already going to be a little cautious. And if we're reacting in a very dysregulated way, they respond in real time to that. Whereas if we're already regulated and we're calm and we're, you know, approaching them appropriately, they won't have that reaction. Are you guys, like, that ability to recognize Mm -hmm. that the abused animal and the abused person can kind of recognize each other is is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Are you studying how that happens, or do you understand at all how that happens, how that works? I don't think that's part of our study process. Um, That's the kind of stuff that's being better understood through fMRI studies. Okay. Um, because you're you're getting you're seeing how the blood flows in the brain based yeah. on different stimuli and different reactions to things. Um, so it's kind of combining that 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 external knowledge with what we're seeing behaviorally. Because if you if you learn from somebody like say Pirelli, right, who who um, trains horses, if you learn from somebody like that or Tim Job of Natural Lifemanship, you learn more about how the the horse brain works. Um, and really just any kind of prey animal, how their brain works in response to a predator approaching them. Um, And then as we learn more about neuroscience and how our brains react to traumatic events, it's kind of putting the pieces together of going, okay, so this is how this happens in our brain. This is how it happens in their brain. Why are they behaving in this way? It has something to do with the connection between those two and the response to each other. So, you know, you have various neurotransmitters that are released when you approach an animal. So, for example, the easiest one to think about is a dog. When you approach a dog, especially a dog that's yours and that you already have a bond with, both parties release oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone. And both an- both you and the dog release it in near the same amount. And that's part of what makes dogs love us so much and why we have such a strong connection with dogs over the, you know, the centuries of breeding them that they release oxytocin to that level. And that's part of what's different about cats, right? Cats don't have the same reaction to us. <laughs> and part of it's because they don't release the same amount of neurotransmitter and oxytocin that we do or that dogs do. So I know that there, you know, there's a lot of various components. And the more we learn about neuroscience, the more we're going to understand those details that you're looking for of, of why does this happen? Because those are great questions. I knew half an hour was not going to be <laughs> enough today. This is fascinating. Landon Dickinson is an LPC intern for Ranch Hands Rescue. You can find them online at ranchhandsrescue.org. Talk to me about what your background is. How did you find Ranch Hands Rescue? It's a great question. It really came as a, um offshoot of my partner's plan. She really wanted to, wants to, at some point, open an animal sanctuary. She would love to do it with elephants because she loves elephants and there's a huge need there. And then to partner counseling with them because that's never been done. Elephants and people for counseling. But elephants are very intelligent, so no reason it shouldn't work. So anyway, we were talking about that and I was like, man, that's a great idea. I wonder if that exists somewhere. So I started doing research and I came across Ranch Hands Rescue. And I started reading and learning more about it. You know, like you were talking about on the website, there's so much information there. And there's wonderful YouTube videos about trauma and working with animals. 
And I just thought to myself, this is an amazing modality. This is a wonderful program. Um, I got to be a part of this. Like, I, I just, I got to be. Because my background is um, crisis intervention, suicide. Um, I've worked with sexual assault survivors, veterans, all the things that we focus on. So when I, when I found this, I reached out to Bob and just sent him an email and said, this is amazing. I, I got to be part of this. And he called me in for an interview and we just hit it off. How know? long have you been there? I've been there since March of last year. So coming up on a year. Licensed professional counselor. It's, mm-hmm. You're an intern. So are you going to be a professional counselor for Ranch Hands Rescue? Or do you want to take your experience here and, and do something else like you were talking about? Right. I plan to stay at Ranch Hands Rescue because to me it's been an amazing opportunity and an incredible experience. And I'm, I'm just passionate about our focus and Bob's long-term goals for us. Just his vision is the same one that I have for helping people and helping animals because both have inherent worth and dignity and partnering the two is just, it's an incredible experience, not only from the scientific perspective and trying to understand it better, but also on that emotional, personal level of, of having had the experience myself of going through something traumatic, going out there and feeling the healing start almost immediately. And so I plan to stay there. Uh, I'm about halfway through my hours. I am done with school. So studying is more of a uh, extracurricular activity at this point. (laughs) We do have things called CEUs, continuing education units or credits that we have to get. Um, And so that's how I got, uh, or that's part of what led me to EMDR, which is one of the modalities that we have out there that I know you're interested in talking about. I do want to talk about that. Real quick, though, what is your science background? You are talking to me about some very interesting scientific topics, but you definitely have a scientific brain and understanding of what you're doing here. So what is your background in science? Well, first, thank you for saying that. That was very kind. (laughs) Um, But second, uh, I got my bachelor's of science from Texas A&M with a minor in neuroscience. That's kind of where I was going through the psychology program, and I was like, I want to make this as hard on myself as possible, (laughs) and I want to make sure I understand this from the bottom up. And so, you know, I, I took the neurobiology of psych disorders, you know, and, and any kind of the master's level courses in neuroscience so that I could try to understand that. And then once I left there, I got into the field and started working, started just kind of doing research on my own, you know, books, webinars, podcasts, whatever I could find about it. And then I went to UNT where I got my master's of science in clinical mental health counseling with a focus on crisis intervention. So just kind of throughout the process, it's been both in school and out of school, my focus has been to learn the science of it because I'm just fascinated by how the brain works. When did you figure out this fascination? I mean, this is, like you're saying, uh, professional, educational, and and personal. This is what you like to do in your off time. This is a hobby for you as well. When did you discover that you had this interest? Have you always been into this? Nobody's ever asked me that. I remember when I was a teenager, probably 12, 13, 14, I picked up a book called The Psychology of Mind-Body Disorders. And I think that's kind of where it started because I I was sick as a kid a lot and I couldn't really figure out why. Um, and we, we went to test after test after test, all these medical tests, invasive medical tests, and everything came back positive. Everything came back fine, clear, no problems whatsoever. So it's like, what is this? What is going on? And that's where I first discovered the connection between the mind and the body where you can have what are called psychosomatic symptoms, where it's physical symptoms wrought of mental disorders or or psychological stress. So 
and and just as a side note, I did go through a fair amount of um, abuse as a kid. And so I think that's part of what started me on the path of trying to understand this, because I've always found that if I can wrap my head around something, then I can deal with it and I can start to move forward. And that's the same kind of thing that I've tried to do in in my counseling that I think is kind of different than what you might get with other counselors. A lot of counselors will, you know, I, I've heard clients say it was like voodoo. You know, it just it, it helped, but I don't know how or why. And that's frustrating. I try to take the voodoo out of it. I think that's another component of why the science is so important to me. I want to take the voodoo out of counseling. I want it. I want the client to understand what's going on with them. I want to understand what's going on with me. I want to understand what's going on with the animals. If we can understand it, then that's how we get ahead of it. That's the way I look at it. That is such, for me, that would be such a calming and effective way to learn about any issue, whether it was a physical ailment or a mental ailment. I always feel like I want to ask, yeah, but why? Right. Like, what's going on? Like, exactly. explain it to me. Tell me why this is going on. And a lot of times, people don't know how to do that or aren't qualified to do that. You're right. actually working as hard as you can to deliver that exact information. Like, that's exactly. really what you're trying to get. Exactly. You're a very calming personality like you Thank see you. you're ultra chill is this something that you have learned through your experiences with therapy or is just you're just kind of that dude <laughs> i would say it's cultivated yeah I really mean, i i haven't turned on my therapist voice for you <laughs> <laughs> do you have one i do i do can actually you, like can i try oh. yeah give me a little bit of that um you're doing today nick i'm doing good i'm glad to hear that what are you bringing with me today i'm i'm bringing curiosity to figure out why you are working at this organization and why it's so effective. You're feeling really curious about why I do what I do. Exactly. Well, that's fantastic. I love it when somebody's curious and wants to talk to me about their own personal life and <laughs> mine as well. That actually works. I was like, oh, that feels good. <laughs> um, it, it's It's interesting that you can kind of put that hat on and figure this out. Is there a difference, in your opinion, between the counselor and the scientist, or are they the same person? Well... That's a tough question and with a complex answer, because on the one hand, I've heard a lot of people say that when they see a psychologist, it's kind of cold and clinical, whereas when they see a counselor, it's very personable and uh, emotional and, and a sensing type experience. I really would like to see a bridging of that gap. I think that's part of my focus is, I, you know, I want to have that person-centered, you know, Carl Rogers, if you ever heard of him. Uh, approach that's just very calming and understanding and, you know, patient and what we call unconditional positive regard. But that doesn't stop me from wanting to take a moment and go, okay, so now we understand kind of what you're bringing to the table. Let me help you break it down and explain some of the components so that, like we were talking about earlier, you can wrap your head around it and have a little more understanding about how you got here. Um, not just feel not just feel heard and understood, but actually be heard and understood, and you yourself understand what's going on. Um, so again, in my mind, I want to bridge the gap between those two, but both absolutely have their place, because I will, as often as is needed, I will refer people to psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, medical professionals, because if you don't have an accurate assessment of what's going on for a person, or if there is a medical condition that's intervening, then we're not going to make a lot of progress with the emotional and the psychological. You know, you, you got to look at the whole person, uh, kind of a holistic view of, of what the presenting issue is. How do most people find Ranch Hands Rescue, the people that are experiencing and using your services 
how do they get in there? So there's a variety of possibilities. We partner with several agencies in the in the community that will send us referrals. But obviously, we have our website. We have a Psychology Today ad. So I mean, if you just Google Ranch Hands Rescue, you're going to see all those options. Um, some people just call us directly on the phone. Other people, it's referrals from professionals because a lot of professionals recognize that we have a unique program, that we have a, a unique option for people that they may not get other places. And one of the other things that really drew me to Ranch Hands Rescue that I, I want to make sure I talk about is our scholarship program. 84% of our clientele need some sort of subsidy for their um, for their services. And that's one thing that I don't see, in my opinion, enough of in the mental health field is it's like it's either community-based free services or it's private counseling and it's really expensive or it's inpatient and it's $1,500 a day. You know, and you have to go through insurance or something like that. Ranch Hands Rescue has a scholarship program through grant partnerships where we get funding from major, you know, uh, grant funders or through just donations from everybody, from, you know, people like yourself that say, hey, I can donate $10 a month to help sponsor this client or $20 a month to sponsor this animal. Like, that's how we facilitate keeping our doors open and, uh, providing services to people that otherwise wouldn't have access to that high level of care. Because, I mean, if, if you go see an EMDR therapist in the community, you're looking at $120 or more a session. And there's a lot of people that really need it that can't afford it. So I have some clients that are paying, you know, $5 a session through the scholarship. And it's That's because great. their need is really high. And, you know, we look at that and we provide what we can for them. And that, that to me, was one of the things that just you know, open my heart up to the idea of Ranch Hands Rescue because I just, I want more of that. What about the animals that are living with you guys? Where do they come from? They, nine times out of 10, they're going to be coming from police. Uh, we actually have a dog right now that came from the FBI because they were sexually abused. It's a national criminal case. And the dog was? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you stories that'll make your nails curl. I'm sure. And so... And and Bob has posted this stuff on Facebook. He keeps up our Facebook page regularly. So if you're interested in seeing more about our animals, uh, please visit us on Facebook. But also what I can say is they come from the police, They sometimes from the FBI like that. And other times Bob goes to like, you know, a shelter where they were going to be putting them down and says, no, we're taking them. Because we want to, we go to the nth degree. I mean, we have the first horse in the world to get a prosthetic without an amputation which is midnight. He's been featured all over the world. We've got a dog right now that uh, was born with three deformed limbs. So she'll be like the first to get three prosthetic legs because that's just not done. It's usually one, sometimes two. Um, we have the first uh, sheep in the world to have a quadruple bypass. Yeah, we have, uh, we have a goat named Daisy that's got this really bad crick in her neck. Um, it, like it's twisted. And those kind of animals are found on the side of the road by the, you know, sheriff's deputy and then brought to us because normally they'd just be put down. But Bob will go to the ends of the earth to get these animals, one, saved, two, healthy, and then let them live out their best lives with us because they are they have ongoing medical needs. How many animals are on the property? I believe right now it's 38. You don't don't quote me on that. I believe it's 38. That's a lot. It is because we have two separate properties and we have everything from horses, miniature horses, goats, sheep, pigs, uh, a couple llamas, a couple alpaca. Um, and then, like I said, dogs, cats. We recently rescued a ram that was attacked by dogs. 
Um, so, I mean, we, we have a full range of, of animals. And what about people? How many people are using your facilities and services? Uh, currently? Yeah, like how many clients would you guys clients? See? I don't know the, the exact number on, on clients uh, that we're currently seeing. Um, I know that my caseload usually varies somewhere between 15 and, and 25, somewhere in, in that range. Okay. Uh, and that's on a weekly basis, sometimes every other week. Is it a big staff? No, we're still very small. We have five or six six counselors right now. All right, we're still growing. Oh man, this I'm I'm fascinated. I, I'm really glad that you came in today. There's a lot that you guys are, are doing, and a, and a lot that you're working on. We just decided off mic to extend this interview because we have a lot to discuss. So that's exactly what we're going to do more with Landon Dixon of Ranch Hands Rescue coming up next. You're listening to Better Living. Hey, is that a faucet running? Nope, that's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. It is? Yeah. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. The water comes straight from the forest to us. In fact... What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. How do trees clean the air? They soak up the dirty air on their leaves, branches, and trunks, which means clean air for us. Hmm. Cool. I didn't know that. Yep. But the forest does more than give us clean air and water. It gives us shade for hot days, birds to listen to, and trees to climb. Wow. That's awesome. I didn't know how cool the forest could be. Hey, let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Think fast. In the short time it takes to listen to this message, a small flame can turn into a big fire. Several minutes more, and thick, poisonous smoke may have filled your lungs and reduced your ability to respond. Give it five, and your entire home may be filled with flames. Keep breathing. We've got you. Don't let your world go up in smoke. Have working smoke alarms and practice an escape plan for you and your loved ones. Learn more at usfa.fema.gov because fire is everyone's fight. Welcome back to Better Living. I'm your host, Nick Carissimi. My guest today, Landon Dixon of Ranch Hands Rescue. How big is the property that you guys work on? You said you have two. Mm-hmm. We're, they're, uh, well, it's, it's a few acres, but... The the primary property that we started on is in Argyle, Texas, and we share space with American Pet Spa and Resort. So that's a separate business, um, but it's on the same property, and we, we share those resources. Talk to me about what this process looks like for people that are coming in as clients. You have somebody coming in. What's their first step at Ranch Hands Rescue? So basically, if somebody you know calls or emails us or is referred to us, Currently, I'm the one handling a lot of that information. It'll typically go through our front office staff, and then she'll forward the call to me, and I'll follow up and make a phone call to the person and kind of see, okay, hey, what's going on? What are you struggling with? What are you needing counseling for? And I will get that information from them, and then typically what will happen is I'll send them an email with an application for services, and that's where they can put all their information where they can put insurance information if they have it, because we did start taking insurance this last year. 
So we take insurance, but then they can also indicate if they need a scholarship, um, and then they can put you know things like income level so that we can make determinations on where they would fit in terms of you know the scholarship level, how much they can afford to pay. Um, and from there, I'll typically provide referrals if there's a wait list, which currently we have a wait list. Um, so I'll provide referrals in case they need something in the in the interim. But we also have done you know things like concurrent therapy, where they're seeing someone outside of Ranch Hands Rescue, or maybe they're doing family counseling outside of Ranch Hands Rescue. Then they come out here for the individual and that more trauma-focused approach, because um, oftentimes that that double layer is helpful for people. But it just kind of depends on what that person's needs are, and we make an assessment based on you know what they're coming to us with. When does the interaction between human and animal occur? During the intake session. So after they get their um, application processed and, you know, they get a counselor assigned to them, then they'll come in for an intake where, you know, just like any doctor's office where you got to do all the initial paperwork, get your HIPAA forms and um, release of information, all that good stuff. And then what I'll do is answer any questions they have about that, kind of explain, you know, what to expect out at Ranch Hands Rescue, go over some basics of animal behavior and, and safety. I've never had an animal injure anyone, never even been injured myself. Like all of our animals are very well rehabbed and very kind and gentle. And if there's ever any kind of disruption, because, you know, sometimes they get they get a little frisky when it's cold out and they get excited. Sure. Um, but if I see anything like that, you know, I'll, I'll pull the client back. But again, never had a problem like that. But we go over that just to ensure safety is, is in place. So then we go out and I kind of give them a tour of the place and introduce them to all the animals, tell them all the names and let them meet them. And then from there, it's a, a week by week basis. So, you know, like this last week, it was cold and rainy. So we did counseling in my office or in my cottage. Actually, it's a cottage, um, which, again, totally different environment than your typical office setting. And even in there, I have Rue, the three-legged prosthetic dog that I mentioned. She's in there hanging out with me. And then I have Jones, um, which is a cat that we had rescued. And they're both in there with me. And so we can still do some of that, that animal work. But we don't have to do that every time if the person's, you know, not comfortable yet or if they're not... Uh, or if, like I said, it's cold and raining outside, or maybe they're just uncomfortable around a large animal. So it kind of depends on the person and what their needs are that, that day or that week or for their treatment plan. Do clients bond with a certain animal? If, if I was going to be using Ranch Hands Rescue Services, would I start going and, and hanging out with Rue exclusively when I go in for my sessions? Or is it typical for a client to just be around all of the animals and just being on the farm and whatever interaction happens that day happens? So once again, it depends, right? We have um, some clients, it, it's it's amazing to watch because sometimes people just connect with a particular animal and the animal with them. And then other times it takes a little while before they kind of find who they have a good connection with or who, or who they don't. One example that's just been fascinating to me, and I wish I understood it better, is my clients who struggle with autism, they can walk right up to the llamas and start petting them, and the llamas are cool about it. Whereas with me, I can barely, I've barely once or twice touched the llamas. They're very skittish, and they run off. Um, even Tim Joe, you know, mentioned natural lifemanship. He came out to our ranch a few years ago, and even him, he's the kind of person that in 30 minutes, he's riding a Mustang that's never been tamed before, right? He spent 45 minutes with the llamas before he got them to connect with him. 
So it's, and he's a master at this, right? So it's just, it's amazing to see different clients have different connections with different animals. So specifically people with autism and the llamas? That's what I've seen. I don't know if others would have the same experience, but that's just something I've consistently seen. And it's been a really special experience to witness because they, they may not connect with other animals, but they just gravitate right to the llamas and the llamas to them. And the llamas don't do that with anybody else, it seems like. So I, this isn't something that I would have thought to ask, but it does raise this question for me. Are certain animals better at doing certain things for certain people? Also a good question. Um, I think it kind of depends, once again, on the animal and on the client. I couldn't say that, you know, you come into the office and go, you're going to be a goat guy. You know, I, <laughs> I couldn't necessarily just say that. Sure. Um, but once we get out there we tend to see a gravitation and at least what I've observed and, and from what I've you know talked about with my colleagues out there, it seems like whatever the client's struggling with, the animal that reflects that in okay. a mirror. So I had a client last week that they feel very different. They, they feel like they just don't connect, like they're an outsider and like they just don't have value in, in their interactions with the others. And they gravitated to Daisy the one, the goat with the crook neck. And she's, you know, she looks very different, right? And because she can't, because she has that neck like that, she can't defend herself in the pecking order out with the rest of the animals. So she has her own pin. And she, you know, obviously she can still see and interact and we go in there and see her all the time, but we couldn't let her with the other animals because, you know, there's always that running around pecking order. So she's by herself and she looks very different. So we had this wonderful conversation about inherent worth and dignity and the connection between my client and Daisy, whereas, and that's just who she gravitated to as opposed to any of the other animals. And, and it has something to do with the reflection of what they see. So truly the personality of that animal and their experience matching with the personality and experience of that person. It doesn't necessarily happen to be whatever that animal is, a horse, a goat, a dog. Right. It's, it's that personality of that animal. Yes, that's, that seems to be it. It seems to be kind of like a mirror. Do you feel like you understand this or are you super interested in this organization because it raises so many questions and it's so rich for understanding and, and research? Both. <laughs> Both. Yeah, because I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the human brain. I'm fascinated by brains in general because a lot. One, so one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that prey animals, farm animals, they have a neocortex. You know, people think, oh, they're just they're just reacting. Like, no, they can think and they can think ahead. They're more intelligent than we give them credit for, and they pick up on a lot more than we realize. And so understanding more about that is fascinating to me. Um, but also, you know, like you said, the research component of it of, you know, like you said, why does this work? We see that it does, but why? Let's dig into that and figure out what it is. And we're making progress in that in that area. But I mean, I have a friend who's uh, studying neuroscience as a PhD uh, at UT Dallas. And, you know, the way he described the understanding of the brain is you could perfectly understand one square centimeter of the human brain and have it down perfect. Full understanding of that one square centimeter. As soon as you add another square centimeter to that one, it disrupts the whole system. It's a whole different ballgame. The algorithms completely change. So understanding this stuff is challenging is going to take years of research, but I love to be part of that process. It's just, it's an exciting frontier. Landon Dixon is an LPC intern for Ranch Hands Rescue, their website, ranchhandsrescue.org. You said that 
basically there's a multitude of reasons why you found this organization and why you've really stuck with it. But you said that you also used their services, Mm -hmm. that it helped you. So what animal and what treatment helped you to feel better? You'd be a great example of helping people understand what this organization does for the people that use its services. Sure. That's a great question. As a, I got, like I said, I was hired back in March of last year. Um, and at the time I was what's known as lost team coordinator. It's local outreach to suicide survivors. And I went to the scene of a suicide because um, that's what that program does is provide some on-scene support. And I had not just that scene, but a couple others where I had seen the body and the, you know, it was bullet wound to the head. So seeing the aftermath and the gore and then also just absorbing all the emotions from the loved ones, you know, the, the ones who were, you know, either the partner or the daughter or the son of this, you know, these people. And I'd been doing that for a while. And so one day it just I I, I was in my office and I'd never had this happen before. Um, I was literally shaking like my, my hands were trembling. And that's a common sign of trauma. That's a post-trauma reaction. It's not post-traumatic stress disorder. It's it's an acute stress reaction. That's what happens right after a traumatic event because PTSD is not diagnosed till at least two months after the event itself. So this was within that two-month period, and hand trembling is a is a sign. And I again, I'd never had that happen before. And I was like, I gotta I gotta do something like this. This isn't good. So again, I had recently been hired at Ranch Hands Rescue, and so I just went out there on my own, just by myself. I went out to be with the animals. And Blue Bonnet, one of the horses that we have out there, um, she's got a uh, a nerve, a damaged nerve in one leg, and she drags her foot along the ground. Um, again, another animal that normally would have been euthanized because they're useless, quote-unquote. Um, but we take care of her, and she's an incredible therapy animal and just an incredible creature to be around. I I love her to death. And I went out into the pasture and this hadn't happened before. I, I, you know, would usually walk up and start interacting with the animals and trying to, you know, learn more about connecting with animals. But this particular day, I just was so defeated. I didn't even try to do anything. I was just standing out there and she walked right over to me and just nuzzled up to me and just was just there. And I just started crying, which I'm not a crier. And but that day I was and it just kind of flowed out and the shaking stopped. And from a neuroscience perspective, what happened is my brainstem re-regulated that that sense of safety and ability to cope in the moment that is part of a regulated brainstem had been disrupted by this event. Right. And was dysregulated. All my systems were out of whack. I went out there with Blue Bonnet. She just came up to me and was just just shared space with me. And it's like she knew. I'm very much science-minded, but there are some things we don't fully understand and that are just kind of magical. And that's what happened. She just, it's like she got it. Like when somebody says, you get me. That's what that experience was like. And the shaking stopped. After a minute, I stopped crying and I just felt peaceful. And that was just an incredible experience for me personally. And and it's such an honor to share that space with clients who get that for the first time or who have that for 45 or 50 minutes out of their week, which, I mean, what a reprieve 
when you're living in that day to day, but then you get a few minutes without it. That's, I mean, that's therapy right there. I wanted to ask what progress or what results look like to you, and I didn't know if I would be able to get a good answer out of you because I think that would be hard to quantify because you're dealing with humans and and people and emotions, and it's very complex. But I think that's a great answer to that question right there is that you were able to experience that yourself. Did it change how you worked at the organization? What did that moment do for you in your understanding of, of, of what you're doing with your life's work? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think, I think up to that point, I intellectually understood the power of animals in therapy, but I didn't feel it. It hadn't internalized and connected on that deeper level. You know what I mean? Cause you, it's, it's, it is helpful to wrap your head around something, but that's where I started to learn that wrapping your head around something is not enough. It's that internalization where you feel it in your gut. That's, that's where the long-term uh, change happens because the intellectual is, stuff is really helpful and helps you kind of navigate. But it's when that change happens on that gut level that we end up seeing the long-term positive outcomes. And you know, just to go back for a moment to answer your question, we do testing, not just the UNT research study, but we do testing. So like the trauma symptom inventory, which is used by the World Health Organization. Um, checklists for trauma symptoms like we we do these testings regularly with our clients and that has that is on that science side is one of the really cool things to see I'll have a client come in and they got all these spikes into the clinical significant clinically significant categories and they've got 16 out of 20 trauma symptoms checked off it's been a few months maybe three four months out there sometimes six some people are there a year year and a half it depends on the, the complexity of the case and where they're at but it's incredible and so cool to not only feel it from the client and hear them talk about it, but then to be able to show them test results that look at this, look at how all these levels have dropped on this objective measure of your functioning. They're all subclinical. They're, you know, you've got one symptom now, a little bit of problems concentrating. Who doesn't have that from time to time, right? Sure. Sleep difficulties. We all struggle with that from time to time. You know, you're not having these severe trauma symptoms of hypervigilance, flashbacks, nightmares, um, just constant anxiety or self-harm, suicidal thoughts. When those start going away, I mean, that's when that's when people start functioning again and aren't trapped by these cycles that they get caught in with PTSD that lead to things like drug addiction and self-harm and eating disorders and everything else. Is it really helpful to show people quantified results like that where you can say, actually, you're making you can basically show people progress? Have you found that that's super helpful? Again, it depends. Uh, some clients find it very helpful. Um, some clients just don't care. <laughs> OK. Uh, typically, the teenage clients, they don't really care. <laughs> the adults are very interested in it. But I I personally enjoy showing it to people because in, in my mind and from what I've seen, it gives a sense of hope. Because even if you're not necessarily feeling better yet, quote unquote, feeling better yet, you can see, okay, this is better than when I first came in. And one of the things that I even point out sometimes uh, on those self-assessment measures is just look at your handwriting. You know, the the pen marks are deep and jagged and clearly you wrote it quickly and harshly. But now they're calm. They're they're the the pin mark is lighter. They're, there's they're more rounded edges. They're not nearly as jagged and and uh, erratic as they were when you first came in. And you went from like these deep check these deep X marks on the symptoms to light little check marks. 
Like that seems so small, but it's evidence of progress. And that gives people some hope that, hey, okay, this is working. This is, this is helping. This helps me stick with it to know, okay, I am making progress. I'm not just stuck. One of the programs that I wanted to talk about with you today that I saw on your website, which, once again, ranchhandsrescue.org, is EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization. I, I always mess up that word. <laughs> and reprocessing. Yes. The results that you showed on the website, which I think it said three 90-minute sessions reduces PTSD, PTSD levels in 90% of people that take this form of therapy, do I have that correct? I believe so. What What is this therapy, and, and how does it work? So EMDR is one of several modalities that we use out at Ranch Hands Rescue. Um, the, the one with the animals is actually called equine and animal-assisted counseling um, rather than just equine-assisted therapy. Um, and then also, you know, we have trauma-focused CBT, play therapy, all kinds of options, because basically what we want is enough tools in our toolbox to find what's going to work for this client, to find the right fit for this person, because not everybody's going to respond to the same interventions in the same way. EMDR specifically is was developed by uh, Dr. Shapiro for trauma originally, but it's been found to work with a whole host of different disorders. And, you know, they talk about the difference between big T and little t, big T trauma being something like sexual assault or combat Whereas little t being something more like, you know, your boss yelled at you or you got in a close call on the highway, but you didn't actually get in a wreck. Those things are still, you know, they still dysregulate your system for a little bit. You know, you get that heart jumps in your throat and you <laughs> rapid breathing like that's still a slightly traumatic event. Right. That's still disruption. So it's really helpful for a variety of, of cons- presenting concerns. But at the at the core of it, what we're trying to do and really, this is what we're trying to do with therapy in general, is help move somebody from a maladaptive way of thinking to a more adaptive way of thinking. So, you know, you have someone that has this belief because they were sexually assaulted. At Deep down at the core, the message that was sent to you is that you're worthless. You're not worth any more to me than some something to be used, right? So when you've internalized this message that I'm worthless, then why bother? Why, why do anything? Why engage with anything? And then for some people, that deep down feeling leads to things like addiction um, or eating disorders or, or self-harm or suicide. Because either one, why bother? Or two, I got to get rid of this feeling. This is awful. Um, so that's a very maladaptive way of looking at it. Because, I mean, you and I with a healthy brain, we know, yes, that awful thing happened to you and it should not have. That's not okay but you're not worthless because of it. But that doesn't change that deep down, that's how they feel. So what we're trying to tap into is moving that maladaptive way of thinking to a more adaptive way of thinking, because that will extrapolate throughout the rest of the lifespan rather than just kind of coping with it. We're actually changing how the person looks at themselves and their interactions in the world long-term, because that's one of, that's something that I really try to focus on as much as I can, is I don't want to just you know, quote unquote, clear out the traumatic event so that it doesn't have the same impact that it used to. I also want to set the person up for success long term, help them build resiliency so that if uh, when other bad things happen in their life, they can handle it. I want to work myself out of a job, essentially. So so it's a coping. Me- it's a it's a coping mechanism. Is that a good way to put it? Not quite. 
um, it, it helps with the process of coping because w- one of the things that makes it helpful uh, in terms of coping is it kind of think about something really terrible that you've seen, right? An, an image that you've seen. Maybe it's even on the computer and it's like, oh, that's awful. That's a terrible thing. But I don't have a a personal connection to it of where it disrupts my entire day or my entire week or month or year, right? It, it's It's awful and I know that, but I can still look at it and say, Okay, that's bad, but I'm still okay. That's the that's the other part of EMDR that makes it such a successful treatment. Because that you know, it's one of uh, my friends had went through EMDR as a result of you know seeing their son shoot himself, and or seeing the aftermath of that. And she said that after going through that treatment, she can still look at the image, but and know it's horrible, and and you know be like, I hate this, but it doesn't disrupt her whole day. And like it used to, and she can still be personally okay despite the awful thing. So that that's kind of that separation or that that distancing, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. that happens. And that's part of what helps people cope in the short term while we work on moving from the maladaptive to the adaptive for that long term for those long term outcomes. The term eye movement. Mm-hmm. What is the? Are we actually talking about eye movement, or does this mean something else that I'm not understanding? It does actually involve eye movement. Um, we there's other options called like tapping, where somebody has holds these little um, device, this device that uh, vibrates alternatively back and forth, and what that's called bilateral stimulation. So it could be moving the eyes, or it could be the the tapping. And what's interesting is even when you use the the tapping back and forth. People close their eyes and their eyes still move back and forth without even realizing it. Does it reset the brain? What what function goes on to where moving your eyes is somehow going to help you with a traumatic event? So there's a lot of research still being done about that because at least from what I've seen in the research, we don't fully understand how that works. We There's some theories that it has a connection to REM sleep uh, because REM sleep is kind of the brain consolidating information throughout the day. Like that's basically why we dream is to consolidate information. And so we think it's maybe, or the research shows that maybe it's connected to that, but we don't know 100% for sure. But what I, what I can say we know for sure about bilateral stimulation and part of why animal assisted therapy is effective is going back to that re-regulating the brainstem. Because you can think about it like this. When I entered your studio today, if I had come in rushing at you or charging at you or dancing around being erratic, you would not feel safe, right? Which would essentially disrupt your your brainstem and that regulation process. But I come in, like you were saying earlier, calm, rhythmic behavior, patterned behavior that you can predict, you feel safe. And that helps you re-regulate the brainstem. So that's part of the bilateral stimulation that happens both out with the animals and in the in the office with EMDR. And there are some organizations that that pair the two where they do EMDR with animal assisted therapy. And so it's that that rhythmic pattern behavior that helps re-regulate the brainstem. And again, you have this bottom-up process where, okay, the brainstem's re-regulated. So now we can connect to the limbic system, then into the neocortex and have this transformative experience that results in a new state of, of calm and um, a connection to understanding. Because when you have a dysregulation, your neocortex is offline because you're in survival mode, right? Have you, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody in a state of panic, but you can't reason with them. They, they 
They, yeah. Yeah. They yes. don't have the ability to reason. In you kind of enter that air. You just talked about like when you enter that kind of animal state. Right. That primal state where you're just looking at survival. You're not really able to reason things out. And so when we come in and kind of help with the bilateral stimulation and the rhythmic pattern behavior, we help re-regulate that process so that all essentially the system can kick back online. When you hear PTSD, you mostly think of veterans, or at least I do. Sure. Does this therapy, does this modality work really well with veterans? Has it been very? Is there a positive response there? Typically, uh, the the research is kind of mixed because there's um, there's another form of of trauma therapy that's that's kind of the golden standard. I, th- I think. Uh, don't quote me on that. From the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, called CPT, Cognitive Processing Therapy. And veterans respond really well to that. And so I know that they respond well to EMDR as well. It just, once again, it kind of depends on the person. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the elements are of CPT because I haven't been trained in it. But I just know from what I've read that it's very effective with veterans and it's used a lot in the VA. So I know it's there's a lot of overlap in those processes uh, in, between EMDR and CPT. There, there's some overlap. And so I, I think... I know that veterans respond well to both, but I'm not sure exactly which one's more effective. Have you been working for a long time with EMDR? Is this something you've been fascinated with for a while? I've been interested in it since I started in um, my master's program back in 2014. Just so, hearing about this and reading about how effective it is and, and how little it takes relatively to, to produce results, why isn't this more popular? Or do I just not know about it because I'm not in this field? <laughs> Probably. Okay. I, I think it's it's gained a lot of popularity since uh, it was first put forth back in like the late 80s, I think, is when she was developing it and putting it forward. So it's gained a lot of ground over the last 20, 30 years. And it's very much popular. I think part of the the reason maybe you don't see as much of it um, is because it's, it's fairly expensive to go through the process of, of becoming certified. And so... Um, not everybody can afford to go get EMDR trained and, and certified. And then there are distinctions. There's EMDR trained, which I am, and then there's EMDR certification, which I may pursue at some point. I just haven't yet because you can't as an intern. You, I could go through the process, but I wouldn't actually be certified until I got my full license. So not really a point. Is there is there an area that you really want to focus on? You, you still do a lot with research, but is it good for you to pick a path and, and really delve into that so you can help more people or, or become an expert in that specific field? Or do you like to stay open? I think my focus will remain trauma. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go. I haven't decided yet if I want to go for a particular niche in terms of trauma. I know that one of the reasons that I focus on trauma is because what, what I've found and what I've seen and part of my frustration with the mental health field is we tend to think of trauma as the exception. And my opinion is no, trauma is the rule. Because I have yet to meet somebody with, you know, an eating disorder or addiction or self-harm, suicidal thoughts, um, even anxiety that don't have some form of trauma in their background. Maybe it's maybe it's several little T's, but that stuff adds up. And nine times out of 10, there's a big T trauma in there that we just don't know about yet. And the person doesn't even realize has had the effect that it's had on them. And so I want to maintain my focus on trauma. But I think the thing that I'd really like to study more, and if I ever go back and get my PhD and do research, is going to be resiliency. Because 
I, I really want to understand what are the brain mechanisms that make, say, an Oprah, you know, because she went through some awful traumas in her childhood that she's talked about in her books and occasionally on, in interviews. And yet look what where she's gotten. Right. You know, or, or like a John McCain that goes through what he went through and then becomes a senator. Right? There does seem to be something about that where right. certain people are able to produce amazing things through their trauma and right. based off of it or if people are repressing something they're able to do amazing physical things it seems and then you find out later that there was some issue somewhere right. or something like that there does seem to be a common thread there to an extent exactly and and I, I really want to understand okay what is that right like what is it that causes that or that allows that to happen and how do we tap into it because if we can tap into what breeds resiliency then that could Potentially, that could revolutionize how we approach this stuff. Because I mean, a lot of a lot of right now is kind of um, we're kind of in a pre-antibiotic stage. You know, like when antibiotics hit the scene, we were curing stuff right and left, right. But before that, we're just treating the symptoms and trying to figure out, okay, what works, what doesn't. Not sure, you know. And we've got a lot of stuff that is effective, but there's still this gap. You know, kind of like our program being that one day percent of people who get stuck. Like, okay, how do we tap into that? How do we move people through this and promote resiliency? That's that's a great area of study. It's really fascinating because you really seem to be right in the middle between the science and research of a subject, the science of it, and then also, as you were talking about earlier, that kind of gut-feeling magic type thing that yeah. happens with human beings and consciousness and all these things that we as human beings don't really understand. Right. You're trying to figure that out by using science. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's a gap to be bridged there. And exactly how is still a mystery to us. Um, but I, I try to bring philosophy into it as well as much as possible to try to bridge that gap while we figure out the, the neuroscience of it. And that's why I was you know talking to you uh, off mic about meaning and purpose, because I think that's a huge component of what allows someone to be resilient is they have some sense of meaning and purpose that helps them move forward. Because if you're pursuing happiness, you're you're in for a, a rough ride. Um, I mean, doing drugs, that'll make you feel happy, but it doesn't get you through the hard times. Whereas meaning and purpose, if you have that, it doesn't seem to matter what you're up against. You can keep going. You can keep pushing forward. And, you know, I, I cite people like Viktor Frankl who survived the Holocaust and talks a lot about meaning and purpose. Those are the people that survived, the ones who had a meaning and purpose going through that experience, the ones that were just hoping for it to end or that were trying to remain happy in spite of it. They didn't make it. And that's something he specifically talks about. So how to tap into to that meaning making process and that not just psychological and emotional, but neurochemical sense of resiliency and an ability to be resilient. That's that's where I'd like to see more research and where I would like to study just because that seems like a powerful intersection for how people can not only heal, um, but be successful wherever they're at. It's fascinating. It is. I had no idea that we were going to go down this road today. I've learned a <laughs> lot and I almost feel like I have more questions now than when we started, but I think that's a good thing. Before we wrap up, I do have to ask, are you guys constantly looking to bring an elephant to Ranch Hands Rescue. Is that part of your secret mission there? Oh, man. I would love that. I think that'd be great. We would need a lot more space. So if you'd like to see us get an elephant, 
fund away. Please, please send all the donations and funding that you can so we can get more space. If people want to learn more about this organization, donate, volunteer, what's the best way for them to do that? The website, ranchhandrescue.org, um, or the Facebook page, which, again, is Ranch Hands Rescue, and go through Facebook. We have donate buttons at all of those sources, and you can always email us um, through those websites. There's links to do that. Um, send us messages. The, our phone numbers are on there as well. We were only supposed to talk for half an hour today. We're now at an hour. We're going to dedicate a whole episode to Ranch Hands Rescue. Wonderful. You have to come back. I'm fascinated. I want to learn more. Bring some more people. Absolutely. And uh, I want to discover more about this organization. You're doing great things. It's been fascinating. Landon Dixon is an LPC intern for Ranch Hands Rescue. Once again, their website, ranchhandsrescue.org. Thank you again, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Real quick, before we go, you can reach them online at ranchhandsrescue.org or give them a call at 940-464-0985. I'm Nick Carissimi. Join me again next time on Better Living. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.